This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I literally am at home, but it feels like home because the person I'm reporting with today makes me feel safe. <laughs> yeah. uh, Russ Martin, how are you? Troy, my sweet baby angel. <laughs> how are you doing? Uh, I'm good. I've got a tea and a gin and tonic, so I am ready to dig the F in. I'm actually really jealous. I don't have any gin at my house, but like gin is my preferred drink. It's like my preferred cocktail. I love a gin and tonic with a million limes. That sounds amazing right now. Oh, I'm straight up there with you. A little lime, a little bitters. We're yes. all in. <laughs> uh, so we're doing an episode today that feels very like, it feels like something that only you and I, like I feel way comfortable doing this with you because we're around the same age. Yeah, we're so, the exact same vintage and uh, yeah. of the same vintage of the particular character that we're going in on today. So we're talking today about Jeffree Star and Nathan. How do you pronounce Nathan's last name? Schwant? I do not know. Have you ever heard like, Nathan's last name even referred to? I've never heard a person speak it. Schwant. I'm just going to call him Nate. Yeah, no, I'm like, same. Same <laughs> But we're talking about Jeffree Star today, which in turn means that we're talking about MySpace. And like my, my heart is literally pumping a mile a minute. I'm so excited. We are back into the mid-2000s. It's where we both peaked. <laughs> literally. Literally. <laughs> I'm wearing my Letterman's jacket right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're talking about Jeffrey and Nate. I mean, like, here's the thing. I've talked about, about MySpace a lot on this podcast before. And what I realized in, like, going back and listening to old episodes is that I've talked about it in this, like, romantic way. But I've never spoken about it Um in a way that depicts how dark it was and how depressing the mood was and just like how it was a little bit of a scary time in many ways. It had to be for parents. I mean, we were like immersed in it, but like I can't imagine what a lot of kids' parents thought when their parents were like emerging from their room with like, I mean, just like looking like depressed teenagers. No, talking about suicide with strangers on the internet when the parents didn't even know what the internet was. Like looking back on the things that I did and got away with and the things that I somehow convinced my parents were normal is 
batshit insane and being an adult with media literacy and experience on the internet, if I had a child, hell to the no. Would they be oh doing my God. any of the shenanigans that I got up to on the internet? And that was before, I mean, we were lucky enough that, like, you know, it was sort of before, like, right before cell phones became, like, all-encompassing. Like, we were kind of, like, the last generation to have razors? cell phones like that were, like, yeah, razors and sidekicks and stuff. So, like, you literally used them for communication. Like, there was nothing really more to do. Um, I had a sidekick, so I used AIM on it. I mean, I guess that was, like, pretty tentilating. But, like, for the most part, like, you know, you had to sit in front of your computer to be bad, you know? And we sat in front of our computers for hours. And we were, <laughs> yeah, so we were real bad. That's how we got here. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally why I'm doing this podcast, if you want to be honest. Um, but yeah, so I guess we can go ahead and get started. Um, once a, Okay, there we go. Okay, so Jeffrey and Nate started dating sometime in 2015. I didn't get like a definitive date, did you? Um, I actually think that I did get a month. Uh, I believe that it is March 2015 because in one of the boyfriend Q&A videos uh, that I think probably we both watched on YouTube, they mentioned mm-hmm. that it was their one year anniversary. So I just dated it back from there. Oh, okay. All right. You're at the spy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they started dating around the same time that Jeffrey launched his makeup brand. And the interesting thing about Jeffrey's relationship with Nate is that Nate being in his life sort of represents this, like, 2.0 version of Jeffrey. Like, there was before Nate, and there was after. And, like, it's weird to imagine how those things would have correlated, like, had Nate met him, like, two years prior. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it was the dawning of the age of Jeffree Star Makeup Queen, and mm-hmm. Nate was the boyfriend for the billionaire. Nate was not... Nate would not have fit into 2000s Jeffrey. No, absolutely not. He would have been, like, fixing his Nissan, whatever, Sentra or whatever, (laughs) in the fucking driveway, like, changing oil, not knowing what to do in his mansion. Um, And, I don't know, a conversation about Jeffree Star's early internet presence is worth having, like, in my opinion, given where we are now, as far as social media and just our media in general, when you look at like sexuality and drag culture and just sort of gender in general, like where we are. Um, Jeffrey was on the internet doing what's now considered to be kind of normal. Uh, but for the time it was literally mind boggling. Like it shook everybody. Oh no. It messed people up and people had very adverse reactions to it. I think in part because of, how Jeffrey presented in terms of gender and because the way of presenting even online as a person being a brand was a new thing that people thought was niche or weird or gauche. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it was also like, let's be frank and not pull any punches, but Jeffrey was really aggressive and terrible. uh, Yeah. And like in your face in a way that was like, in some instances, kind of punk rock and kind of cool, but in some instances, just, like, really gross and completely crossed a line. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely really weird to, like, look at old videos of Jeffree Star, like, old interviews and stuff, and, like, that felt normal to my teenage brain. Like, that was the... Jeffree was such a representation of, like, teenaged angst. You know what I mean? Like... The, the angst that all these kids were feeling on the internet, all of this, like, these suicidal thoughts and, 
you know, just the depressing music that we were immersing ourselves in, but also at the same time being obsessed with this like pastel emo bullshit. Like Jeffrey was like the birth of that in a weird way. And it felt very normal at the time, but it's jarring to go back and look at it now. Oh no, you're totally right. It broke my brain watching some of these videos and hearing the things that Jeffrey was saying and thinking back about how I was 15 or 16 years old watching these videos in like small town Manitoba, thinking that it was normal and cool. Yeah. Be uh, like, yeah, he beat, he hit a woman in the face at a show. Cool. Oh, we'll get there. <laughs> um, and then obviously speaking of MySpace, I wanted to talk today about like the fact that Jeffree Star has been an internet presence for long enough that several generations of people have completely different ideas of who Jeffree Star is because of how he was introduced to them at whatever age. Um, so we're that old. Yeah, no, there are actually very few celebrities that I can think of even in wider popular culture that occupy that different space in different generations. That's sort of like a Madonna thing or a Cher yep. thing to be a totally different person to a different yep. generation. You know, like the Madonna that you and I were introduced to was very different than the Madonna of 10 or 15 years prior and culturally meant something different. And Jeffrey's really like that. Uh, you could barely explain to these kids that he was on the Vans warp Tour with a different face punching bitches. <laughs> with a different face. I know. Like, I... So, I'm... Th how, how old are you? Uh, I'm 1988. I'm 31 this year. Oh, okay. Well, I'm 31, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't yeah. know that we were the exact same age. Okay, um... No, we're, we're twin Gemini babies. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, for us, Jeffrey... Like, we look at him as this, like... I don't know, like, in my mind, Jeffrey is this sort of, like, former like MySpace queen, a former musician who like rebranded himself to the masses. And for a lot of younger people, Jeffrey is like a YouTube star yeah. and is a person with a successful makeup brand and who likes drama. And there are literally millions of kids who don't know Jeffree Star prior to YouTube. And quite frankly, they don't care. Like they don't give a shit. This is their, they think they created him for one thing. 100. They're like, oh yeah. Us buying his lipsticks, you know, made him, like, a name. And, like, they literally think that. Well, in a way, they're right. It's true. They, like, made his millions. We gave him nothing. No, no, no. We gave him nothing but, like, those scars on his wrist. Literally. And, like, MySpace photo likes. It's like, uh thanks. You guys, I want to talk to you about something important. If you know me, then you know that I'm pretty unapologetic about the fact that I champion women. I was raised by women, I've only ever really lived with women, and I'm surrounded by what I would consider to be strong female energy for a majority of my day, which is why I feel compelled to talk to you about Lola. Lola is a female-founded company offering a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, liners, and all-natural cleansing wipes. They ask themselves, if we care about the ingredients in the food we eat and the beauty products we use, then why shouldn't the same be true for feminine care products? Unlike other major brands, Lola products are 100% natural and easy to feel good about. There's no BS, no mystery fibers, or doubts about what's going on in your body. Plus, Lola products come in a simple, customizable subscription. Lola will deliver exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. In addition to Lola being a female-founded company that offers a line of organic cotton tampons, pads, and liners, 
they now offer sex products too. Sex by Lola is a line of gynecologist approved sexual health and wellness products, lubricated condoms, personal lubricant, and cleansing wipes designed first and foremost for women. All products are stripped of unnecessary irritating additives and deliver the sensation and reliability women expect and deserve. Sex by Lola is the next step in the mission to becoming the first lifelong brand for women's bodies. Until now, women have only been offered products aggressively marketed towards men and their desires. But what about your needs, girls? At Lola, women come first. You should be empowered to make decisions about your sex life. Lola's ultra-thin lubricated condoms are made of a natural rubber latex and individually tested for contraception and STI protection. Their ultra-thin design and premium medical-grade silicone oil lubricant ensures a safe and without sacrificing sensation. I got a discreet little Lola subscription box in the mail, and guess what I did with it? I put all the products in glass jars and stationed them around my bathroom. Because Lola items come in this very chic, simple matte packaging so now when i have people over they'll feel encouraged to maybe take a condom or three um also when i have girlfriends over and they stay the night or whatever they have an array of safe feminine hygiene products to choose from your lola subscription is fully customizable you can choose your mix of products absorbency number of boxes and frequency of delivery lola subscription is super flexible you can also change skip or cancel your subscription at any time um also for every purchase lola will donate feminine care products to homeless shelters across the u.s and for 30% off your first month's subscription, visit mylola.com and enter smush when you subscribe. One person that I came across who is perhaps a, a better comparison, who is his contemporary, is Sonny from First to Last. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sonny. <laughs> I came across a picture of probably 2006 or 2007, Sonny and Jeffrey. And I'm like, whoa, these are two people who are different people yeah it's almost like a vintage con man situation where you were able to go from city to city in the 1940s just coming up with a new scam <laughs> you know, like, and a new mustache yeah the 2010s are here guess i'm skrillex <laughs> yeah. and it's it's crazy to read i love looking at those old interviews and making the comments like newest first and reading these kids being like whoa like his face is so different like this isn't even the same person. This is so wild. He must have been really sad back then. <laughs> like, oh my God, this is so weird. I feel so old. Um, and then uh, lastly, before we like really get into it, I did want to mention that um, this episode is, there's an episode that I did before where I talked about Tila Tequila, but obviously talked about MySpace a lot. Um, and I was at the time like living in the fantasy you know what I mean? I was, like, living in the fantasy of, like, reminiscing about what it felt like to, like, be on MySpace, and I was so excited to talk about it. Um, and I also hadn't done this podcast for a long time, so I wasn't, like, hardened yet by all the terrible news that I read. Uh, <laughs> so it was a lot of reminiscing and just being like, oh, MySpace was so fun. And I still think MySpace is great, but, like, I definitely want to, like, focus on, like, emo culture, like, during its peak, how dark it was, and, like, through the eyes of a fucking grown-ass old person, um, and that it's more than, like, it's so funny, like, I was actually looking online at these kids that were having, like, early 2000s, like, emo-themed, like, parties. Yeah, so, like, right now, contemporary? <sighs> yeah. It, I think that we're, like, two or three years away from a revival, because we've been getting the early 2000s nostalgia, mm -hmm. and emo really broke into like mainstream culture what like 2004 to 2008 or so yeah for sure so like those years so i think that we're just like inching towards 
a like, good Charlotte fallout boy. Well, I don't know. You know, like Taylor Swift is bringing back Brendan from Panic at the Disco in the year 2019. They're on the fucking radio. Are you kidding me? I know. It's wild. I mean, I'm not going to say that I wouldn't love a, like a, a, a rebranded pop punk fucking whatever. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I have an affection for a girl in fingerless gloves bouncing around on stage. So <laughs> I mean, like I'm not, I'm not opposed to it. Um, but yeah, I guess you want to get started talking about Jeffrey. Let's do it. Jeffrey Lynn, as we like to call it. <laughs> so Jeffrey was, Jeffrey's an Orange County gal, um, which look, it triggers me in multiple ways that we are the same age as Jeffree Star. Like I'm triggered in multiple ways. I, my whole life, for some reason, thought Jeffrey was, like, so much older than me. No, three years. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Like, it blew my mind. Um, but, so, his, Jeffrey's dad committed suicide when he was six years old, and if you watched his um, YouTube videos, specifically the ones, like, post-Shane Dawson sort of, like, rebranding him, um, you'll know that he's also had a really strained relationship with his mom, uh, he has a video called Revealing My Last Dark Secrets where he talks about having not spoken to his mom, um, his birth mom, in like 10 years as of 2018. And um, that, you know, he had been claiming his aunt as his mom via social media because it was just easier to lie about it. Um, his birth mom was like a, ref- a former model, but she became an alcoholic later in life. And um, she was like homeless at a certain point. Do you know, like, the current situation with him and his mom's relationship. No, I didn't actually know any of that that you just said uh, at all. She was homeless, like, in recent years? Yeah, last year. Like, when he reconnected with her, he found out that she was living in her car. Oh, that's dark. I know. So he was, like, helping her get a place and um, getting, a, like, getting a, like, a working car. And But I don't think, unless I could be wrong, but I don't, I don't think he's updated like the public on their relationship since he said that last year. So I don't know. No, that makes it even more interesting that he's sort of playing house with Nate's family. I know. I know. He's like Bethany. Yeah. You know? Um, And we also learned in Shane's profile of Jeffrey that he's, you know, he was a super depressed teenager. No surprise. He was bullied and he was suicidal. Um, He was addicted to cutting and one of the most memorable moments from his series of Shane is, you know, him showing Shane, like all of the cuts on his body that, you know, some of them dating back like 10 or 20 years. And, um, he also, you know, stated that he started doing makeup in middle school, like while his, like his peers were out like playing sports and doing shit in people's yards or whatever. He was like listening to the Spice Girls. And, uh, in seventh grade, he and his mom relocated to Costa Mesa and this is where he really leaned into his goth fantasy. I love 90s goth Jeffree Star. So you have seen the yearbook photos, obviously, right? Oh, of course. I just, so there is this one yearbook photo where it's like, have you ever seen Marilyn Manson's yearbook photo? Yes. Where they're like, Marilyn Manson was a normal person before he was a character. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a, a, just like that, regular ass white guy, just like normal looking kid, pretty full face. Uh, not mm-hmm. full faces in like beat for the gods, but full faces in like some baby fat. Uh, yeah. And then the next year, it's like the year she came back goth. Yep. And he was like classic '90s goth, like leather trench to the floor, fucking tees, like 
you know, platform boots, like like Matrix goth. Which you is, know what I mean? Yeah, which is also sort of the reason that maybe he seemed more than three years older because he was doing a goth style that went out of style like several years before he was doing it. Yeah, it's right? crazy. It's crazy. Like he was like he was like inching towards he was like trench coat mafia era goth. Yes. In like the early 2000s. It's weird. Um But yeah, uh I actually I read this interview. Actually, you put this interview in your notes and then I I read the whole thing and I like I took a bunch of quotes from it, but it's with um Sound and Sirens in 2007. Um, he said, as I started my high school journey, I didn't feel like I fit into any category. Everyone wanted to work at Walmart or go to college or use their parents forever. And I wanted to create art and pursue my makeup career and make a name for myself. Uh, I always wanted to, he said, I always saw my name in pink lights. So glamour came naturally to me. And that was like 2007 when he was still poor. Like Jeffree Star is just one of those people that always knew one of those people that just like knew that they'd be famous for something whether it was like whatever a, it may be no he had a dash of Anna Nicole yeah, uh, you couldn't have said it better yeah that's why you're here today <laughs> <laughs> nobody else be saying that about Jeffree Star <laughs> <laughs> it is it's like that Anna Nicole thing of like I'm going to be a star for whatever reason you decide to make me one but yeah. my name will be in lights doll and come hell or high water, but I'm getting out of Orange County and I'm going to be famous whether it's in 2008 or 2018. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we should talk about MySpace. Uh, so, like, I've talked in the past about, like, the MySpace origin story, but it's been a long time, like, I think two years. So, you know, it's time to do a little bit of a, a refresher. Um, but so during the time of its development, Friendster was like this very chic way to connect with people on the internet. And the creators of MySpace essentially wanted to mimic the concept of Friendster. Um, so the developers all worked together at a company called E-Universe. And at the time, the only people who were on MySpace when it launched were people from E-Universe. It was literally an employee website. Um, and they had like 20 million users from E-Universe and everyone on their mailing list basically sign up. Like, that's how people got on MySpace is that they sent out, like, a company email. And they're like, hey, could you guys start using this website by chance? <laughs> um, did you have a Friendster account? I did have a Friendster account. I actually have a very vivid memory from what was must have been junior high. There was a VJ on Much Music, which is the Canadian version of MTV, uh, named okay. Jen, who, as an adult woman, like a decade later, actually worked at Twitter uh, and was like the public face of Twitter in Canada, very involved. Uh, she showed on Much Music Friendster and showed and explained what it was and how to use it. And like my like thirteen year old ass sitting at home is like, I'm getting a Friendster. I'm gonna get <laughs> friends on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> what was Friendster like in comparison to MySpace? Like, why was it? It, Did it just feel like an early MySpace? It was closer to an early Facebook than it was an early MySpace. It didn't have the cultural aspect that MySpace came to have with the music and the alternative aspect of the culture, the scene kid thing. Uh, it was more of a straightforward Facebook-style friend website. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I don't know why I didn't... I'd never... Like, MySpace was my first real foray into, like, 
really, really, which I'll get to in a minute here, but like, it really was like my, it was like being introduced to the dark web. You know what I mean? It was like, oh, this exists. We're, we're not just all using ass jeans all day. <laughs> like, okay. Um, but the website, so it grew super, it grew rapidly, really fast. Um, so fast that Friendster actually couldn't keep up with how fast MySpace was going. And uh, it quickly became the number one website on the internet for teenagers. Um, and this was pre-using terms like social media to describe websites. So like, yeah, there wasn't even you know, a word to describe what MySpace was. Yeah, it was just a teen website. And it was like, you know, it was just one of several websites that teenagers used, like, um, like Zanga and like LiveJournal. Did you have a Zanga? I didn't have a Zanga. I had a LiveJournal. Okay. I was a Zanga gal. Please do not try to find it. It is passive. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, thank God Zanga no longer exists because mine was like on the internet for years. All of my like depressing teenage bullshit of being like, my mom freaking sucks so bad. Here's why. And also like, um, this is another thing that I'll get to in a second, but like MySpace taught me how to code. So like I started yeah. coding all of my, I guess what you would call social media websites, like a fucking hacker. So my Zanga, I remember I coded it so that when you went to my Zanga, it would automatically play music, which it like wasn't supposed to do. So you would be bombarded with this blaring scene music, like keyboards would just start attacking you. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there were also there was like melodramatic and all these other websites that I also didn't use. Um, I also I don't think that it can be overstated how MySpace was not for everyone. And I'm kind of yes. at the time the internet was not for everyone. Like I don't know about how it was for you where you were and you're a particular junior high or whatever. But mm -hmm. for me, using the internet at all, and particularly using MySpace, was not necessarily a cool thing to do. It wasn't a mainstream thing to do. It is not like today where everyone has Instagram, everyone has right. Facebook. It was a very particular group of people who were using the internet on MySpace and doing that brand of internet self-promotion. 1,000%. MySpace was like a website that like sort of alienated basic people. Yeah. If, it, if you really want to be honest, like it was a website that like your friend who has been wearing Ugg boots in the North Face every day for over 15 years and has never thought to wear anything else felt very uncomfortable on MySpace. Like that was the girl who had a MySpace that was like, a, a, a single color background and like didn't really put any any time into it and felt really weirded out by it like it was a place where basic people felt uncomfortable honestly it was and with good reason <laughs> <laughs> with good reason um and jeffrey really quickly gained like this massive following um and was titled the Marilyn manson of myspace during its first year but before myspace was number was like the number one website in the world Jeffrey was on, he was the number one user on facethejury.com. Did you use that? Please tell me you didn't. I did not use Face the Jury, but I am loath to admit I did use Hot or Not. <laughs> me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Well, me and my friends would go through it and like rate people. Uh, I had a profile on Hot or Not that did uh, extremely well for my 13 year old self. And then I didn't update the picture. And I remember logging in like three years later. Oh my and God. my ranking had plummeted. And the people were oh coming no. for me because I did not stay current. Oh, no. Oh, my God. The, 
the strength it took. My God, you're so brave. Holy shit, I could never. Were um, you into melodramatic? No, I was not into melodramatic. I like actually like barely even know what that is, to be honest. Got it. So I guess that was another website that Jeffrey was huge on, Face the Jury and melodramatic.com, which I think is sort of like Encyclopedia Dramatica or what's that other shit talking one from the 2000s? Uh, oh, it was the like Dirty? A, the Dirty, the public burn yeah. book. Yep. Oh, there was some good shit on the Dirty about some people that I knew back in the 2000s. Honey, me too. <laughs> the Dirty and Is Anyone Up? Like, did you ever go to Is Anyone Up? Oh, I followed the downfall of <laughs> Is Anyone Up very closely. <laughs> Oh my god, I had a lot of friends that ended up on that website and were like really upset about it, obviously. Obviously. Well, and again, all of these uh, websites just point to how different of an era this was on the internet. It was before anti-bullying. It was before Lady Gaga's culture of kindness. It was before the morning shows tackled these things. It was before every celebrity in the world got defensive. It was before back-off haters. And it was an era when... Because it was a smaller slice of the public and a particular slice of the public, we were out there snarking on people and hating on people. And that's sort of what social web culture was in that era. And it was normalized and allowed and it got to some dark places. Yeah, I refer to it in my mind. I've always referred to it as like the wild, wild west of the internet. It was like there were no rules or boundaries there was no social protocol like anything was on the table whatever you wanted to do or say no there was no limit to how far you could like bully somebody i mean it was like really it was crazy yeah um i'm sorry go ahead i feel like i just cut you off no no no, no. go in i was gonna say the thing that i remember the, the the thing that i remember the most specifically about jeffrey during this specific time is that he was constantly pushing out content and he was constantly doing photo shoots and posting new very like branded jeffree star brand images of himself and you know he wouldn't allow people to not see him even if he wanted to which you know in turn kind of made people feel like he was more important than he was and like saying that now it's like almost it almost sounds basic because it's like that's what everybody does um everybody and their fucking aunt has an internet following at this point but like at the time that was profound and basically he basically helped create the idea of being internet famous for simply just existing and being interesting and you know myspace definitely opened up the idea that anybody could be a model or a a musician or like a photographer or whatever you felt like being and like when i hear people talk about paris hilton making kim kardashian famous i'm like yes but also like myspace taught kim kardashian how to be famous really so what year was The Simple Life Season 1? 99, 2000? I think it was like 2001. Something like that? Yeah. So it that was the introduction of this idea that you could be famous for being famous. Mm-hmm. But that was fueled by Page Six. And Nikki and Paris had a Vanity Fair spread, and they were using the traditional media. What Jeffrey did with MySpace, Jeffrey and Tila and other people of the like, was further that idea of being famous for being famous without any traditional cultural gatekeeping. It was just Jeffrey pushing out content 
the way that people now, like thousands of people every day push out really high quality photo shoots, but no one was doing that. No. At all. And it was a couple of years before Jeffrey had music. Yeah, and this was like the era of people trying their fucking hardest. I mean, this is like pre-apps, like pre, you know, Facetune and whatever. And like, I remember sitting on the internet, like I, I used to actually do photography as like a, like a side hustle for like 10 years. And the crazy thing is that I learned how to be interested in photography from MySpace. Like it was just, it was a place that really helped you sort of hone in on the things that you felt passionate about that you maybe you didn't even know that you were passionate about. You were like, Oh, like I really fucking like makeup or like, I really, really like doing, I like editing photos. Like, you know, it was like um, a way of kind of like discovering your like weird kinks. And Jeffrey was like, you said he was doing these really high quality, like photoshopped to hell photos, which like at the time having photoshopped pictures on your MySpace was like, it meant that you were somebody was sitting in front of a computer for hours and doing that for you. You weren't like face tuning it for four minutes. You know what I mean? It was like a, there was like an art element to it. No, the rest of us were just holding our cameras really high above our heads, hoping for a good <laughs> angle. <laughs> yeah, and then looking at Jeffrey and being like, "God damn it! How does she do it? Oh, the girl is on fire!" Um, uh, have, then, uh, did, did we mention oh, top sorry, eight? Okay, so I was gonna say that in the previous episode that I did about Tila. I talked about how, you know, Tom Anderson of MySpace contacted Tila and basically asked her to, like, move all of her following from Friendster over to the website. And he basically did the same thing with Jeffrey, where he took all of his friends from Face the Jury, which is, like, where he was the most popular, and brought them over to MySpace. And it was a major reason why the website became popular, these two people. Um, and because of that, my... Uh, Jeffrey and Tila were like automatically before you could change your top eight, which was so innovative. Uh, they were automatically put in your top eight. So all of these people were forced to look at him. You know what I mean? All these guys that were probably like, what the fuck? Like guys that were like in the middle of changing their background to like their favorite hockey team were like, pardon? <laughs> pardon me. It's kind of crazy that the idea of the top eight has never come back. Russ, I think about it all the time. Right? Like, for Instagram or for Facebook or for whatever, the top eight was such an important part of what MySpace was. Yeah. Once you were able to change it, and I fucked with my top eight all the time, and people had feelings about who was in each other's top eight. It was a very oh, yeah. big deal as teenagers. Uh, and I don't see an equivalency of that in any of the newer social networks. Not at all. It's actually... It's crazy because, <clears throat> I mean, we can kind of like just rant about MySpace here for a second because <laughs> the crazy thing is that the top eight specifically and just like having friends on MySpace was so different than like what it feels like to have friends on like Instagram because you can add a bunch of people on Instagram and not know them and it doesn't really matter. But on MySpace, like you really, really, and there are people who still use their social medias this way. Um which is cool. And I feel like that's like people who kind of derive from this time period, but you really, really like had these people you interacted with like all day, every single day. They were like legitimate friends. Yeah. Uh, it's more similar to the insular world of like a Facebook group 
At 1,000%. Yes, then, that's the, yeah, only... But it really wasn't, it's not the way that, like, your mom uses Facebook or your grandmother uses Facebook where it reflects their actual social world in real mm-hmm. life. It was this insular world that you had created for yourself. It was of your own making, but it was definitely an insular world. And for those of us who are of that era and who are young enough to have all the free time in the world, that's what we did. Yeah. Yeah. And at the time, it was like, for us, felt normal. But like, for other, I remember telling my mom one day, like, you know that I've been like meeting people on MySpace, right? <laughs> like, you know that I've been like going to like, like when I go to Warp Tour, like I'm meeting a group of people from MySpace from like other parts of like the state that I live in. Like, you know that, right? And like at the time, she thought that that was like a, a horrific, terrifying, like lifetime worthy tale, which I guess it kind of was. But, you know, now it's like you meet people on like the concept of meeting people from the internet is like so normal. But back then a lot of people were doing it, but you didn't, I don't know. It's like people who weren't doing it thought it was very weird. Yeah. People who weren't doing it thought that it was effing crazy. Yeah. Like you're going to get murdered. I can't believe you're driving 20 minutes to meet some kid. And it's like, you're going to meet some other fucking 15 year old who wants to drink liquor from a water bottle. You know what I mean? Like, it's, you're not doing anything really crazy or like tantalizing. You're getting drunk in people's basements or going to shows. Um, but I don't know. It was just such a such a free time. It was almost like a second. Like when you hear your parents talk about like hitchhiking in the 70s or whatever. Like it's almost and you can't imagine like sticking your thumb out and just getting in a truck with somebody. Like it's almost like that. It was like <laughs> the second coming of teenagers just being wild and free. Well, and it did. It really connected the music scene for teenagers and you knew people when you went to shows because you knew them from myspace oh god i miss that time so much like see now it's happening i'm getting like (laughs) when you bring up the music it's like a whole different thing because like that's what myspace was it was really above all things above the photos and the top eights and the like the photoshop and the fucking invention of selfies um MySpace was for connecting people who liked music and learning new bands. And it makes me sad. And it's like people like, um, like Sky Ferreira. I mean, I did an entire episode on Cassie literally like changing the next 10 years of music because she put a song on her MySpace. Like it's just, it's hard to explain it to people who don't, who weren't like living it. Because it's like, yeah, there's music on Instagram or whatever, but it's like, no, it's different. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, you can't explain it to someone who doesn't have a pre-internet brain. Yeah. Oh, oh, makes me sad. <laughs> <laughs> um, and also, I mean, since we're on the topic, like, there were major, major, major differences between Facebook and MySpace. And I remember, like, for a long time, my friends and I were very adverse to the idea of even sauntering towards Facebook. It was like absolutely not because like MySpace was for like artsy scene kids who liked having creative control over their page. And I've said many times, I think every time I've ever talked about MySpace on this podcast, I've always said that um, your MySpace page was like walking into your bedroom and you know, it was sort of decorated um, in a way that you would decorate your room if you had total creative control over it. And the music that would play automatically when you went to your page was like 
the equivalent of like whatever you were listening to in a fucking boombox because it's 2004 or whatever. Um, you know, and like blogging was a major part of MySpace too, like writing these depressive poems. Uh, and like, you know, it was like walking into a kid's room. It was extremely personal. And it was the complete opposite of Facebook, which at the time was like eggshell cat doctor's office blue. You couldn't add music. You couldn't change anything. It was very college. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was very much so the yearbook for the people who were featured in the yearbook. Yeah. Oh, God damn it. Yes. Yes, it was. It was like, oh, this is so fucking formal and gross. And MySpace was, I don't know, the, the inside of the locker for the Angela Chase crowd. <laughs> oh, that's sweet that you just said that. Angela Chase. Um, but I also wanted to talk to you specifically about, I want to talk about Jeffrey's like early 2000s androgyny and like the Chris Crocker of it all. Yes. Um, like seeing boys not really being feminine, but wearing girl jeans, like what is your take on, like, the way that masculinity was presented at that time and, like, drag not even really being a thing? Yeah, so I had written that down in my notes, uh, especially for anyone who is 10 years younger than us or even, like, five years younger than us. Drag culture has been mainstream culture for about the past decade. In the 2000s, drag culture was not existent. RuPaul was literally in hiding. There is like one or two documented appearances of RuPaul in the entire decade. One of them yeah. is that like horrible appearance on Project Runway. But drag was not part of the culture. And masculinity and femininity were very separate. Mm-hmm. And I think scene culture flirted with femininity. So yeah. I wore girls' jeans for a solid five years, I want to say. Mm-hmm. And that that just in itself, just wearing a girl's denim was something that people noticed, that people yeah. commented on, that people would tease you for. It was a real statement. And it was a real, like, fuck you to be wearing a pair of girls' jeans, mm-hmm. which sounds just insane yeah in the era of gender fluidity but that's how it was and i think there were uh, particular corners of scene culture that were a bit more femme than others mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. but like the most makeup that anyone in prominent bands was wearing was a little bit of eye makeup you know yeah and like sunny's a good example from first to last who is now skrillex uh, yeah. wore a little bit of makeup. My Chemical Romance wore a little bit of makeup. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of those bands wore an eyeshadow and an eyeliner. Maybe mm-hmm. a mascara, uh, but not a full color. Like, maybe red, that's it. And Yeah, red, that would be it. Yeah, and some, like, spiky-up hair. But even if you want to compare it to, like, the glam rock of the 80s, it's much less femme than that. That's, I mean, it's it's such a wild... And the really the weird thing is like I remember also there being this like on the complete other end of the spectrum I remember there being like a switch in like girls like a lot of my girlfriends at that time were really sexually attracted to like more feminine men 
And it was like, I, the first time that I remember like kids sort of flirting with the idea of like, like girls liking watching like guys kiss rather than like it being the opposite. You know, it was just a really weird time of people sort of figuring out their sexuality and like boys kissing boys was a big MySpace thing. It was a very, I should have probably put that in context because I just shorthanded it. But yes, that was, uh, there were entire live journal accounts dedicated to boys kissing boys. I remember I took a lot of photos around the emo punk ska scene, uh, in the 2000s in Winnipeg in Manitoba. And I remember specifically taking lots of photos of punk and scene kids, boys kissing other boys. And that was like a genre of photos. Uh, And it it was a thing that teen girls were like really horny for. They loved it. Like it was like the whole like frat boys like watching girls do stuff when they're drunk at parties like completely turned on its head. Yeah, it was a reverse fetishization of... Mm -hmm. Uh, that, but it wasn't masculine boys kissing masculine no. boys. It was scene boys kissing scene boys. Exactly. Yeah, it was little skinny twink boys with like flat eye kissing other skinny little twink boys. You know, <laughs> but girls like being really turned on by it. Such mm. a silly time, and me being like, I'm straight. Um, but Jeffrey. <laughs> so in in the context of this landscape, Jeffrey was extremely singular. Yeah. In how he presented uh, because he presented in a way that was androgynous and feminine. Yeah. And I brought up, I brought up Chris Crocker only to give Chris credit for the fact that he was also like 1000% trailblazing in that whole like decade of just like not giving a fuck. And like, really, I mean, Chris Crocker, let's be real. Like, he walked so that everybody else could fly. Let's be 100% honest. Like, you know what I mean? Chris Crocker was being just tortured on the internet for, like, putting hair extensions in and, like, wearing heels. Yeah, Chris Crocker, like, looking back, though, is a a very natural femininity, Mm -hmm. at least in compared to the synthetic quality of Jeffrey. Oh, yeah, 1,000%. And, like, Chris Crocker's femininity sort of... um, came in like these waves like him sort of exploring like his masculine and feminine side and trying new things like it it had like ebbs and flows and peaks and valleys and there were moments where chris crocker was like bleached out fucking tan extensions to the ass full on like early 2000s like you know terror reed aesthetic and then there were moments where chris like would totally lean out of that whereas jeffrey just sort of trained like jeffrey had a more um sort of like linear climb to just being Jeffree Star that he is now. Like there was no moment in the early 2000s of Jeffree like dabbling in being masculine, you know? None whatsoever, no. Uh, and But it we didn't have the language to explain right. what Jeffree was doing, or at least mainstream culture didn't, uh, non-queer culture didn't. Uh, I had written down, you remember when Lady Gaga first came out and there was the rumor that Lady Gaga had a dick? Mm-hmm. It was sort of the reverse of that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Is Jeffrey a woman? Which is like, I mean, that's the only, I mean, every interview that I've watched, every single one that is earlier than 2011, like all of them, they're asking Jeffrey, are you a man or a woman? Are you a boy or a girl? Do you have sex with girls or guys? Or I mean, are you just gay? 
Like, are you guy? Like, just boldly being like, hey, are you a man? <laughs> and him having to constantly be like, I don't know. I don't know. Today, it, I, I don't know. In, in the wider culture of the 2000s, it was an era in which people felt free to ask Britney Spears about her virginity. It was a yeah. culture when Girls Gone Wild, it was normalized to walk up to a woman on the street with a video camera and ask her to take her top off. Yep. Uh, people were very blunt about gender and sexuality in a way, looking back, feels very unevolved and very aggressive. And that was certainly pushed towards Jeffrey. But unlike many other people who folded in that era, Jeffrey came from this do-it-yourself culture where he had made it himself. And when people asked him about his gender, he said, fuck you to them. Yeah. Very aggressively into their faces and really messed with people who weren't uh, going on board with his ambiguity. Yeah, one of his most iconic old, old, um, like, live stream, I don't even know what the hell he would, like, it wasn't YouTube, but, like, one of his old, like, live stream videos is of him saying, like, we need to come up with a new gender because, like, I'm bored. <laughs> like, I've, I've been a boy, I've been a girl, we need more because I'm bored. Um, but around this time, like, this sort of peak Jeffrey, like, becoming Jeffree Star time, he graduated high school, he moved into an apartment with two of his friends in L.A., and it was at this point that he started doing makeup professionally. Uh, he was hired by Hustler to do makeup for, like, porn shoots. And Is that real? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. Because he definitely used to lie a lot. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't really have a comment on whether or not Jeffrey lies in 2019. Uh, that is less clear to me. But right. it's pretty clear to me that Jeffrey lied a lot in the 2000s. Uh, or stretched the truth, or spun tales, or was being sarcastic <laughs> when it wasn't being read as sarcasm. Uh, but you, in all of these 2000s profiles that you would have in magazines, especially once he started touring, he would go around to these small cities where he would get a lot of press because they hadn't seen anything like him before. And yep. in every single one, it mentions that he worked in makeup on porn shoots. But it sounds like a biographical detail that someone like Jeffree Star would make up to me. And you would think, like, of all the people, Jeffree Star would have, like, a photo on a porn set. Mm hmm With somebody, with, like, a porn star. He was live-casting his entire life at that time. Yeah. Like, he was, like, taking photos of himself at the fucking Mac counter. Yeah, but, so, like, I don't know. It, like, to me, it's more like, I feel like you did blush on a suicide girl once. <laughs> suicide girls. Oh, my God. Um... He did end up meeting Kelly Osborne in 2006 at a club, and she asked him to do her makeup. Um, in an interview with Cosmo from, I think, 2017, he said, I'd never been on an international flight before. I had known her for two days, and they were like, hey, uh, do you want to do her makeup for the Brit Awards? Like, you have to. Do you have a passport? Um, Star recalled... <laughs> When he went to Kelly Osborne's house, he felt like a homeless loser rat because he drove a 91 Nissan Sentra. So he said, I parked on the street so that they wouldn't see me. I was so embarrassed. Um, and this is when you could say that he like really fully leaned into like MySpace being like a profession. And he would spend no less than like 10 hours a day, you know, responding to fans on his page and writing blog posts and networking, you know, with other scene queens and Again, sounds very basic, but you have to consider, like, this is the era of 
literally sitting down at a computer in a computer room and like surfing the web. Um, you couldn't like pull out a phone and respond to a comment on MySpace. Like you had to go home and get on your computer. And I spent many days at home. Well, I guess nothing's changed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically living a MySpace fantasy right now doing this podcast. Um, We've never closed the browser. <laughs> no, Ask Jeeves is still up. There's a million tabs. Um, and Samantha Maloney from the band Peaches is who really gave Jeffrey like his music start. Uh, she ended up giving him a beat that she wasn't using, and he wrote the lyrics to We Want Cunt over it, which at the time was pretty major. Like it, I, I think I read that it had over 100 million plays on his MySpace page that year, and... In summer of 2007, he was invited to perform on Cindy Lauper's True Colors tour. Yeah, um, 2007 was really the year that Jeffrey sort of blew up. Yeah, this was like his big year, and he really was like going to become like a musician. Like if if the music had worked out, like we may have never gotten a, a Jeffrey Star makeup line, or it, it would be a completely different sort of version of itself because he really wanted to be a musician. It was like what his heart was set on for a short period of time. Yeah. He wanted to be a pop star. <laughs> yeah. Which is ironic because he's sort of without being a pop star, he's branded himself as a pop star. Like the fact that he's had these like eras and, you know, like we were talking about earlier, these like moments in his career where like younger people know him as a completely different thing. Like that's like some pop star shit, you know? Yeah, it, but like like Lady Gaga, I think that Jeffree Star, his primary medium is not music or makeup or fashion. His primary medium is fame. Exactly. In whatever way he can get it. Yeah. Like Anna. Exactly. Um, and this is also where you could see him kind of dipping his toe into like mainstream um, media in a way that he hadn't really been able to before. Like, outside of teenagers on the MySpace. Oh, whoa. Whoa. I just literally said the MySpace, and I, like, wasn't joking. Um, Mom. Ew. Ooh. We'll cut that out. Um, <laughs> but he was, you know, he was, like, on some magazine covers, and he was making these regular appearances on LA Inc. because Kat Von D has done, like, all of his tattoos, and she was photographing him for her, her coffee table books. Um but he couldn't get at the time like a major uh record label to sign him so he ended up creating one called popsicle records uh which is again something that you could just do on myspace because myspace gave you the the platform to do whatever you felt like doing creatively so if you wanted to just start a record label on the internet you could you could literally just start a record label by uploading music on myspace and people were like okay yeah um but he got major label distribution right yeah, he did. I think it was, um, I want to say it was Warner. Sure. Were... I just remember that he, he had a major backing him based on the number of people who were listening to him, but they gave him a label rather than signing him to a traditional label and giving him a push because no one, I think, really knew what to do with him. Yeah, and he did say that he felt like Warner at the time really understood his vision and that, like, you know... At a certain point, and this is why, in my opinion, like, the scene sort of died, is because everybody was sort of looking the same, and everybody, every band had some, like, you know, Harlequin novel as their fucking band name that was, like, eight fucking words long, and, like, 
everything was sort of becoming like a version of something that you had seen. And he said that Warner understood that like Jeffrey was like, people are bored and people are going to get bored. We need like weird people like Lady Gaga. Um, Mind you, it's like 2008, you know? Um, But like, we need like weird people uh, making art and like doing something different than wearing skinny jeans and a sideways belt and like singing about, you know, taking some girl's virginity. Like, you know what I mean? Um, but he did release his first and only album, Beauty Killer, in 2009, and it peaked at number seven on Billboard. And uh, it also guest stars Nicki Minaj as a guest writer and um, like a, a mixtape rapper at the time. Yeah. It, this is back when Nicki Minaj was rapping about like the West Indies and curry chicken. <laughs> yeah. And, like, everything was very, like, Barbie-centric. Like, her breaking out of, like, Barbie boxes and, yeah. like, you know, doing everything on her own. And which, They're, by the way, that's, that's not a dig. That is the era of Nikki that I fucking love. Like, yeah. some Beam Me Up Scotty. Like, those were hits. And it was really cool, actually, that Jeffrey knew who Nikki was, found yeah. her, got her on a record. Uh, this was, like, long before Monster. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. This was, like, poor Nikki. Yeah. You know? Cool, Nikki. Yeah, the best version of Nikki. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I, <clears throat> I I know that you definitely touched on in, in your notes was, like, you know, Jeffrey, like, didn't really take his music serious, and it was just, like, shitty rapping behind these very, like, lackluster beats. Uh, the lyrics were all controversial just for the sake of getting attention from people. Um, there was little to no effort put into the music at all before he really took it serious. And it also, again, tracks for the time. Like, this was a, a time when, like, it was such a music-heavy time period. Like, music was such an important part of social media that, you know, it made sense that somebody, like, people our age would listen to this and also not take it serious, but, like, take it serious enough to play it in your friend's bedroom while you're like hanging out you know what i mean yeah it was uh it was a little bit akin to i think what people get from soundcloud rap like one thousand percent you know it's silly and it's fun and one of the primary reasons that you enjoy it is because it feels unique and it feels singular and it feels different from what you get elsewhere and you feel in by being a part of this person's music. Yeah, 1,000%. That, that was really the attraction. But Jeffrey, as a musician, was all aesthetic. It was an image, and the music was so insanely secondary. The music was just, listening back, absolutely about fucking terrible. It was hellacious. It was terrible. Like, it is, like, the most... Basic. It's like the beats that he was rapping over were like the beats that come with a keyboard. Oh yeah, uh, they are like beats that Countess Luann passed over. <laughs> They're like template beats. Um, and that same sound of sound the sirens interview. He said, "I don't just want to sit around and wait for one thing to go through. I want to. I want my career to spiral out of control. Music was something that I never really considered my full time job until recently. And he said, now I've now that I've had." Now that I've experienced all the hard work that goes into touring, I fell in love with it, and now I'm recording more real songs and changing up my style, so the future is mine. 
And yeah, there's definitely like a, a period where you can tell like the budget got bigger. Like he started like writing actual music. It wasn't just about like licking pussies. You know what I mean? It was like actual music. And Akon um, got involved. Can we talk for a second about the fucking Akon of it all? Yeah. Akon having his stamp on queer culture in the 2000s is... Oh my god. Just so outside of the realm of thinkability. It's actually like, I had no idea that the Akon, Akon's involvement was such a massive part of Jeffrey's life. Yeah. Um, For those who don't know, Akon quote-unquote discovered Lady Gaga after Lady Gaga had been passed over by a couple labels and uh, made to songwrite instead for acts like the Pussycat Dolls and Heidi Montag. Uh, Akon grabbed her and they did a bit of a rebrand and she finally got the right deal and she finally got the right push. But when she broke, Akon kind of got pushed out of the picture a little bit as she skyrocketed to fame. And Akon's next bet was Jeffrey. Yeah, so he, like, and Akon was, like, promote. I mean, he was, like, going on every talk show he could and being, like, Jeffrey Star is the next best thing in music. Like, he is the next Lady Gaga. He's, like, he's going to blow up and blah, blah, blah. Um, in t- 2010, he was signed to Convict Music, and he's described it as the worst career choice that he's ever made. Which is like really wild, considering everything that Jeffrey Star is. <laughs> That's pretty telling. Um, in a 106 in Park interview, Akon said, "People ask me what I'm doing, what I'm going to do next, and how I can top Gaga." And Jeffrey Star is how I'm going to top Lady Gaga. Like that's how much he was putting on him. Um, and in his documentary with Shane, he describes this as like, you know, this really dark and depressing time because at that point, like Jeffrey had gotten so far on his own by releasing his own music under like popsicle records and you know just kind of like doing his own thing writing everything himself like asking people like Nicki Minaj that he just thought was cool to to do music with him um but he wanted a massive pop career and he thought that signing as anybody would but this major artist who at the time was huge I mean it was Akon in the early 2000s like um at the time MySpace was dying Jeffrey wasn't making any money and he basically went to Akon for help and was like, I'm broke and I want to make music and I'm poor. So Akon like paid for him to get veneers and, you know, he like got him in the studio with all these really expensive producers for free. Um, and at the same time, Akon was also dealing with this very public assault case because this teenage girl like threw a bottle or something on him, at, like something at him on stage and he like hit her. And that was a big deal. So his his career was like crumbling before his eyes. And this is all while Jeffrey is in like this crippling debt. You know, he has like tax people after him and he can't pay his bills and he's like facing eviction. Um, he quit doing makeup to sign with Akon. So like he quit his job and had no income coming in. It was a really bad time. And his second album never ended up being released and he just quit music altogether because it was such a bad time for him. I don't know about you, but I don't think that Jeffrey could have popped with what he was doing. No, not at all. The music was not good and the music wasn't either accessible. It is not music that could have been played on the radio. And beyond that, the magic of Jeffrey where people liked what created a cult of fandom around him 
was the fact that you would go to a Jeffrey Star show and he would do stuff like kick guys in the balls on stage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, can we talk about him being violent for a second? Yeah, we can. Uh, <laughs> um, in particular, in the year 2007, in Toronto, where I live, he played a show at Fly, which listeners may know as the real-life nightclub of Queer's Folk. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, the, the club in Queer's Folk is Fly in Toronto, which has now shut down, but was a huge gay club in Toronto for many, many years and is important in the nightlife culture here. Uh, around this era, I remember seeing the misshapes there, if that gives you any context. At like wow. a, a cobra snake party. Ugh, I literally have goosebumps even hearing you say <laughs> words like cobra snake and, and a queer as folk. Like the, the hairs on my arms are pinging. So there was a pride uh, party. It was an official uh, pride Toronto event. And at this party, a woman, I guess, had done something that bothered Jeffrey in some way. And Jeffrey literally punched a woman in the face. And bragged about it. Yeah. And it wasn't apologetic nothing was like now she got up in my face and i punched her like he bragged about it in all of his interviews like and that was the thing is like he was so angry and i think i have a quote about it um but he was so angry at the time and so like just such a fucking oh i do he said he said i think that not enough people stick up for themselves he said people seem to think that they can get away with more shit because of the way that i look and because i'm gay and he said, I, he said, I don't know. Who, he said, I don't know. This is, I don't, I think that that's misprinted because I just copied it. He said, I don't know what the fuck. Maybe that is what he said. I don't know. He said, so I just uh, set an example. And that was like the, actually, this is after he tased a guy. So after he punched that girl, he also at warp Tour tased someone and it was caught on camera. Like he tased a kid in the fucking crowd. He chased him off the stage and tased him because the kid threw water at his face like a bunch of times. Um, Violence was really a part of the Jeffree Star brand. I guess, I think maybe even before MySpace or one of the first MySpace photo shoots was a picture of Jeffree in full guiche in heels with real scars and real wounds as he mutilated his own arms. Yeah, that was part of what gained the initial cult following around Jeffrey. And then he did all of these very public things. But he used to do these videos that were really in your face where it was like, what's in your bag? And you would pull out and it would like be a knife. Uh, Yeah. And he carried a taser around. And there's videos of him on the street, like shouting at people who called him a faggot, throwing the taser out, being like, bitch, I will taser you. And, like, by the way, I guess Stone Cold Sober? Yeah, so he was also known at this time for firing band members. He was, like, a really big thing that, like, if you were a part of Jeffree Star's band, you would definitely get fired. And the reason was because he was sober. He didn't drink. He's never had a drink in his life. Um, So he would, like, fire these, like, alcoholics that would tour with him. Um, And that Red... And actually, it was an interview with Red River Noise where he said, it's really... He said, it's just really hard on the road. I don't drink or do anything. I'm actually kind of boring. I just have to deal with alcoholics and crazy people all the time. He said, it gets old really fast. And I just like to go out dancing, but I don't drink alcohol. So it's hard for me to deal with band members that drink their asses off every day. And they just end up getting wasted and throwing up everywhere. Um, One of his interviews that like one of his drummers was like, 
he got so drunk that he stood on stage and like pulled his dick out and started shaving his pubes on the stage in front of a bunch of teenagers. Like just like crazy debaucherous early two thousands MySpace fucking warped tour shit. Um, there is going. Have you seen the Motley Crue movie on Netflix? No, I haven't seen it yet. So it's actually fantastic. I think it's really good. It's uh, that like little white kid rapper Machine Gun Kelly mm-hmm. playing Tommy Lee, and it's a great uh, movie based off of the book Dirt from Motley Crue. Right. Uh, and there is such an opportunity to make an insane mid-2000s Ugh. era movie about this debauchery because Rust. it is shades of crazy rock and roll yep. glam from the 80s, of the Kiss era, of all of this like nonsense where it is boys kissing boys and getting punched in the face and kicked in the nuts and lit hair on fire and tased and yep. all Drunk of teenagers. the craziness. Yeah. Uh, I, that's, that's the movie I want to pitch and see. And I guess like while we're here, cause obviously we do have to talk about this. Like when Jeffrey's racism controversy came up, it was, it was literally, I'm not kidding you. For me, that was the moment that I realized that there is this divide between people who know Jeffrey the way that we know him and younger people who have no idea who honestly a lot of them don't even know that he did music like they've discovered that through him talking about it on YouTube so when those when those um videos resurfaced and I was like oh yeah that's just like old fucking early 2000s Jeffrey like not excusing it but just being like it was in my face for you know six years and that was that was like how we knew him you know what I mean it's like this angry nobody is off limits everybody tries to fuck with me so i'm gonna fuck with everybody and be mean and like terrifying so that people don't fuck with me um it was of no surprise it was of absolute absolutely no surprise it was shocking to me that i was like you think this is bad there's a whole seven years of videos that are like probably worse than the ones that went viral of him doing crazy shit to people Like I said, chasing a kid off stage and and tasing a teenage boy at a fucking, at a concert because he threw a water bottle on stage. I mean. Punching a woman in the face? Punching a woman in her fucking face and then bragging about it for like three months on every, every interview that he did. Like he was crazy. And like, I mean, his entire career was based on, he was literally, the way that Freddy Krueger is fueled by the souls of teenagers, Jeffree Star was fueled by the souls of depressed teenagers. Like. He was, like, he had a career based on suicide and depression and, like, wanting to kill himself. Like, it was just shocking to me that, like, it was such a, you know, 15 years later that it was just, like, this thing that, like, people were so blown away by. As they should be, but also I was just like, where have you been? But it made me realize, you know, we're just old. Yeah, no, we're old as hell, and... uh the cultural climate in how it has changed, you can isolate the racism and put it in a new context and maybe deservedly so, but it is very different than the context of, Oh, you mean this like messy, angry, depressed guy who was lashing out at everybody lashed out in a way that was against a particularly marginalized group of people that's, I guess, not surprising, and it was surprising, clearly, to a large group of people. Or maybe people were just holding it up because they found it despicable, and 
it was despicable too. Yeah, it was horrendous. And it's like, it, it's also such a sign of like, you know, people like Shane Dawson have had controversies about their old internet content and Trisha Paytas. These people who have these sort of crystallized um, terrible videos on the internet from like back in the day when it was okay to parody other races and like fucking go in blackface on, on your MySpace and record yourself. Like craziness. Like I said earlier, the wild, wild west of the internet. Nothing was off limits. And the other really crazy thing is that all of these bands that we've been talking about were all known for sleeping with underage girls. All of them. And they were all like, you know, men in their mid-20s, almost oh. 30s, and they were all fucking 14-year-olds and everybody knew. The Jesse Lacey of it all. Yes. I mean, it was a really, really debaucherous time. Like you said, it really would make an incredible, like, movie or documentary because it is... It's so hard to even explain how crazy it was because there was so much. You live pretty close to the Canadian border. Did Headley mm-hmm. ever make it to you? Um, Do you know who Headley is? Yeah, the name is familiar, but like maybe not to like me. You know what I mean? So uh, there's a dude named Jacob Hogard, and he was on Canadian Idol in the early 2000s, I guess, and then spun off into a pop punk band called Headley that toured very extensively back and forth across Canada, and I think probably a little bit into the States as well. They were sort of uh, a couple of years after Sum 41. Okay. A bit of a, like, post-Simple Plan sort of a feeling. And okay. And it was exactly that. Uh, I knew, personally, during high school, three different women, girls at the time, who had slept multiple times with Jacob Hogan when it was statutory rape or very close to uh, when there was without a doubt a power imbalance to it uh, and it wasn't until I want to say 2017 something like that that he got his day in court and that people pressed charges and that there was a cultural shift towards him and it really uh, fucked shit up in Canada it was a huge Canadian court case after That's the Me Too movement uh, and that and Jesse Lacey who I guess if people don't know Jesse Lacey was the lead singer of Brand New who is one of my absolute favorite bands in high school uh, did the same thing Uh, but there was this complete culture of men in their 20s in scene bands rock bands punk bands pop punk bands emo bands ska bands going to these smaller cities and sliding into the MySpace messages of underage, impressionable, vulnerable teenage girls and exercising fame and power over them to sexually assault them. Uh, And if we're not calling it sexual assault, even if it was consensual, in retrospect of looking back now as a 31-year-old man, I'm just so incredibly jeeved out by being inside of that culture as a young person and not seeing it and not understanding what all these women who were so close to me were 100% going through. You know, it's like, it's fucking wild. I actually had a friend, one of my really close friends, and I'm not going to say her name and I won't say the name of the band, but it was a band that we all loved. A band that had a really big cult following, especially with our group of friends. It was a big deal. Like, all of my friends had, like, tattoos of their lyrics on their bodies. And, I mean, it's it was a big deal. And 
she, when we were like 16, maybe had hooked up with like a drummer from the band. And like at the time, like, of course we all thought it was so cool, you know, like, Oh my God, like you hooked up with this guy that we all love and blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking back now and I'm like, we were literally the most immature childish fucking kids. Like we looked so young and it was, and we were just like, it was pathetic and predatory of him. Yeah. And we were like one, you know, I mean, we were like in Cleveland, like one little town where like you're on a, you're on Vans Warped Tour touring every fucking city in this country. I can't even imagine like what you're actually doing. Um, but yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, that's a far aside, but I think that that is emblematic of the culture at the time. Uh, whether it was the suicidal aspect or the depressed kids or whatever, I think that all these things that we think of now as adults that we weren't recognizing as part of the culture that we were inside of uh, yeah. also included some really messy sexual dynamics. And this is all happening while MySpace is like, like at this particular point that we're at now, like MySpace is dying and, you know, people are moving on to Facebook and there are other, you know, Twitter is becoming like more prominent than, you know, we're moving on from this like kind of debunked website and Jeffree Star is broke and poor, has no money. So he essentially quit music and he took his entire life savings and developed his first batch of liquid lipsticks. Um, he told Cosmo it was either going to work out for me or I was going to have to go back to the mall and work at the Met counter again. And he said it was probably the scariest decision that I've ever made in my entire life. Um, he very famously contacted Kat Von D to help with his makeup line. And according to her, um, you know, the lab who makes her products, like, never would have spoken to Jeffrey if it wasn't for her. And according to Jeffrey she only gave him the phone number and she never really like helped him pursue it. And uh, this lady named Judy Zigarelli, she was the founder of the makeup group that they were going through. She actually did an interview with Cosmo where she said, uh, Jeffrey got a lot of people jealous. If you were selling your product in a store and you were selling maybe five a day, and then this guy comes along and he sold 10,000 pieces before, uh, before the truck could even get back to the lab, you have to go, hmm, I wish I wouldn't have given Judy his phone number. Um, so she basically stuck up for Jeffrey and said, like, you know, Kat Von D's jealous because her products aren't selling as fast. Um, and he started doing makeup tutorials in 2015, and the rest is her story. Like, which is so weird that Jeffrey only really got on YouTube, like, a few years ago. It's wild. Yeah, and YouTube was already a culture with stars by the time yeah. Jeffrey entered. Uh, and like few others has been able to successfully move from one platform to another and have people migrate along with him. It's crazy. Like he was in no way, shape or form um, formative in like makeup tutorials becoming popular on YouTube. He revolutionized them. Yeah, no, that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah. Um, now I have like a literal post-it notes, no amount of notes about Nathan because Nathan is, like, very low-key, and it's completely understandable. He basically has no information about his life on the internet before Jeffrey. Um, and it makes me feel like it's because he probably was so normal just living in Michigan and, you know, See, driving his piece on. As I was researching and trying to find information about Nate, at a certain point, I just started, like, spinning conspiracy theories. 
<laughs> like what? It just the profile of Nate in comparison to what Jeffrey was looking for and had stated that he liked in terms oh, of yeah. quote unquote straight boys. Like Jeffrey had a song called Straight Boys that I just feel like either he manifested him or he I don't, it, Nate feels like a character that Jeffrey invented to be his boyfriend. It's some real like spooky oogie oogie <laughs> 80s movie it, witches of Eastwick uh, practical magic put together different parts of the body and like bam, bam, <laughs> like thank you ma'am here is a real life man for you to date Jeffrey that's very true I read that in your notes like the lyrics that um are from the straight he, boy song yeah yeah I was like whoa like it is kind of weird he like literally he created his perfect man yeah I, and in addition to that so nathan's instagram starts in 2015 when he met jeffrey yeah weird there's not an instagram there's like maybe 15 posts before there's a post with jeffrey that's very strange to me yeah it's odd i did listen do i think that any of this is a real conspiracy no uh he probably has like a finsta he probably has a private facebook page and he probably, you're right, was low-key. Uh, but from somebody who we have such a public documented record and such a uh, personal historical memory of, to be with somebody who is entirely anonymous and the, all the biographical details that we know about him come out of tidbits from videos on Jeffrey's mm-hmm. channel is really bizarre. It's odd. Yeah, no, it's it's weird that it feels like his life started in 2015. Yeah. Like, everything about his life before is just like, you know, his Michigan life or whatever. He worked at a pet shop and, like, skateboards and, like, that's it. And, like, people have been weirdly respectful of his privacy, which is, you know, given who he's dating, it's like, you would think people would be, like, digging things up and, like, you know. But there, like, there appears to be nothing to dig up. Yeah, there's just nothing there. Like, I really do feel like he was just a fucking normal-ass, very, very basic bro living in Michigan and working at a pet shop and and doing shipping and skateboarding and collecting bongs. Yeah, so he's from Wyoming, Michigan. uh, Population 72,000. That's not super far from where you live. Have you ever Mm -hmm. been to Wyoming? No, I haven't. I haven't, but I, I like want to go specifically to like just look at their like uh, their Wyoming property because I feel like you'd be able to walk on it. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine that it's being guarded. Um, so in terms of what Michigan is like, am I right to think that it's similar to Detroit in that it's very uh, industrial, very working class, very rural? I would picture it to be like that. I mean, that's like pretty similar to, I would picture it to be similar to like Cleveland, which is very, like you said, industrial, very like, you know, middle America, like working class. Like, yeah, that's what I, that's what I picture in my mind. All right. Uh, um, also, he was born in 19, uh, is it 93? Yeah. Yeah. Cause is he eight years younger than Jeffrey? Yes, that's correct. Okay, yeah. And oh and we, we should also say that we're both like madly in love with Nathan. 
by everything that we have seen, Nathan is just like a calm, sweet angel who is so attractive. Beyond. I mean, it's like, he's so attractive that he's like, he has the kind of beauty that you just like stare at him. Like, I find myself just staring at his face. And you also wrote in your notes that, um, that he was like sort of made to play second fiddle to somebody who, um, you know, he's such an active listener and he's so, he is no, um, like he's, he's the perfect wee man. Cause he has no interest in being like a star, you know? Yeah. I've been watching and rewatching some of these videos. There's a series they did called the boyfriend Q and a, which is three uh, YouTube videos where they answer questions from Jeffrey's fans about their relationship. Uh, and in those videos and in the videos where Manny puts on his makeup and in the Shane docu-series, he just is an active listener, I think is the best way to describe it. He nods and he looks and he agrees. And I know having been on camera a little bit, that it's hard to be the second person on camera who's not speaking because what yeah. do you do? And he's really figured that out. And I don't think in a savvy way but in a way that I think that he is very happy to play yep. second to Jeffrey and have Jeffrey be the star in the relationship. And it makes me so incredibly curious what the relationship is behind it is. Yeah. And he seems very happy to just kind of help out where he can. Like he like works for Jeffree Star Cosmetics. He does shipping, which is cute because he did shipping for his pet shop. So it's like, he's like using his, uh, his skills or whatever. Um, what do you think about their sex life? I know that they like, they're very open about the fact that they have threesomes and um, it kind of got out of control. I mean, if, a couple of years ago, Nathan had some nude photos leaked from Snapchat because, you know, they will like, basically they were like Snapchatting Nathan's dick to people and being like, hey, do you want to fuck us? But like, obviously when the photos leaked, the person who they sent them to leaked them and was like, Nathan's cheating on Jeffrey. And Jeffrey was like, I literally was like involved in the sending of that photo. Like, so no, but um, so, what do you think about their sex life? Like A, the dick is a 10 out of 10. Beyond. It's like, perfect. It's an 11. It's uh, perfect. And by an 11, I mean like it's an eight. Uh, <laughs> okay, Samantha Jones, you better live. <laughs> uh, there's a particular scene in the Shane doc, not this new one, but the previous one that came out, I guess, in the winter, uh, last winter. And they're sitting on the bed and they're talking about the threesomes in the situation. And I really inferred from them talking about Nathan identifying as straight and having previously only been with people who identify as women that mm-hmm. the threesomes involved women. Is that mm-hmm. also your impression? Yes. But yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, the impression that I get is that he is able to sleep with Jeffrey and that Jeffrey is in a submissive, most of the time, perhaps, role in their relationship. Not yep. in terms, like, I think that Jeffrey wears the pants in terms of owning the house and being a breadwinner and all of those things socially and societally that we ascribed to being masculine uh unfairly frankly Uh but still uh and it's my like wild guess that there's also a 
reversal of that when it comes to the bedroom or the intimacy or how their relationship looks when it's not public. So you think that Jeffrey's a little, little bit more dominant sexually? No, I think that Nate is really in the dominant role sexually. And it's, oh, yeah, okay, it's I get a reversal, it. you know? It's the okay, classic case it. of like the businessman who uh, wants to be like treated like a sub. Yes, 1000%. Jeffrey strikes me, especially in like the kind of passive sexual comments he makes, like he strikes me as like a really intense power bottom in the sense that like he's um, he's like aggressively submissive. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I think there is also, he has spoken about it back in the 2000s, he used to say he doesn't like guys who wear makeup. Uh, right. And now he's talked about how he loves that Nate is sort of. Uh, traditionally masculine in many ways. And I don't know if this is a fair comparison to draw or not, or if this is like a limited way of thinking about gender and sexuality, but uh, in the uh, trans world, uh, trans women in particular are often with men who enjoy particularly trans women, and they see themselves as being in a heterosexual relationship. Right. And that's sort of what I see. Obviously, Jeffrey does not identify as trans, but has spoken a lot about androgyny and takes female, male pronouns, that sort of a thing. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of how I see that relationship. Like, in the way that, like, Amanda Lepore used to be married to a straight man and like live in the suburbs. I think that they have a version of that that has been empowered by the fluidity of gender in the culture of 2019. Does that make sense? 1000%. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you just verbalized how I, I know me too. I, I'm interested in it, especially because I feel like they must have, they obviously have people sign NDAs, right? 1000%. They because invite they're like people. gallivanting and having threesomes all over the world. Yeah. No, they, but nobody talks. They have that type of a relationship, uh, and where I think even like the NDA might be part of the kink. Yeah, agreed. Oh my god, ugh, Jeffrey is just so fucking lucky. <laughs> like he basically has like a sweet really kind-hearted houseboy. Yeah, who I think isn't a houseboy, but is like a houseman. A houseman. And also, I did write on my notes, and I wanted to be very clear about my stance on the fact that I don't, I do not view, um, I, a lot of people, like, there's the, the you know, the, the quintessential debate of, like, is, is Nathan a gold digger? And Nathan met Jeffrey when he was, like, poor. I mean, like, at the time that Nathan got with Jeffrey, he was, like, avoiding creditors. And, like, he had a lien on his fucking, wherever he was living, and his uh, bank accounts were all frozen by the fucking government. Like, there's no world in which Nathan was like, oh, I'm going to get him for his money. He had none. And all the money he had, he had given to Jeffree Star Cosmetics, which he didn't even know at the time if it was going to do well. So, you know... I think it's very clear, though, that Nathan enjoys the money. Oh, 1,000%. The fruits of his labor, honey. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, he's so lucky that he, like... And, you know, Jeffrey's, like, head over heels madly, truly madly, deeply in love with him and 
feels like he's probably found like the one you know what i mean because nathan is like everything like you said that he wanted in a man but also at the same time like nathan loves he loves jeffrey's androgyny and he loves his eccentricity and jeffrey always says in his videos that nathan's favorite makeup looks are like the weirdest ones like the ones that are like the most out of the box so he's always pushing jeffrey to like be more fucking weird and do weirder things and more highlight like he loves it like and he also is the reason that jeffrey's on youtube so i'm sure that that has a major you know he's the one that pushed him to like start recording and it's now become his i mean it's what he's gonna his legacy is going to be his makeup and this his youtube you know do you remember, apparently I'm like relating a lot of Jeffrey's story to Lady Gaga, but do you remember when Lady Gaga was dating Chicago Fire? Yeah, uh-huh. Uh, I remember her talking about how he was a freak. Yeah. And how he loved the freakiness and like the more the freaky the better. And I think that there is a certain brand of heterosexual or heteroflexible or however you want to put it, man who for themselves enjoys the conventions of male gender or just feels comfortable in the conventions of male gender but Mm -hmm. in a romantic partner or in another uh as an observer or an observer participant just adores things being turned upside down and that's part of their visual pleasure or part of their kink Oh, 1000%. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, Nathan is like, I don't know, I just think it's, it's wild that these two found each other. It's actually, it's actually crazy that they found each other. And, you know, Nathan has said in interviews that even when he lived in Michigan, he was interested in men, but he didn't live in a place that allowed him to explore his sexuality the way he can with Jeffrey. And you know, I also believe that to be true. Like, in particular, I think has said that he was interested in men who look like women. Is that right? Yeah. Like, I don't think that Nate is interested in a guy that looks like you or me. Not at all, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and which is what I always think is like funny when there was all of these rumors or whatever about Manny. Oh yeah, uh-huh. And I was like, I don't see it. I no. don't I don't think that like Manny is the bottom that Nate's looking for. Not at all. No. Not at all. I like, think that like he's looking for someone who has feminine power. I agree. When Jeffrey when I found out that like Nathan is the one that pushes Jeffrey to like be more eccentric and to lean in, um like I was like, oh, okay, that changes everything. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, that changes everything. Like, it changed my entire perspective of how Nate views their relationship, how he views Jeffrey, how he views their his role in, their, in what they have. Like, I was like, oh, I get it. And like, wow, you are so fucking lucky, Jeffrey. Like, and it's not, it's crazy that me sitting here and like, like literally contemplating overdrawing my account to buy a pack of cigarettes when I stopped recording with you is saying... Like that Jeffrey's the lucky one. (laughs) (laughs) While Nate is like floating in a pool somewhere right now. But like I it's like I really feel like 
Jeffrey could have very easily been that person living in a palace alone with all of his dogs and nobody to share his life with. And he knows that, you know what I mean? He, he has a rocky relationship with his family. He has unstable friendships and he could have very easily been that person who's just like fucking rent boys, you know? Oh no, he has a rocky and, relationship with the public. He has a rocky relationship with everyone seemingly yeah. like this person. Yeah, so it's amazing that like he found this 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 beautiful, selfless, gorgeous man who is happy to take the back seat, is not after his money, but is happy to spend it with him, and is also not pretending to be anything more than what he is. Nate is like very open about the fact that he has now found an appreciation for you know luxury brands, and he you know, he loves Louis Vuitton and he loves like Supreme and all those things, but he didn't know what they were, you know, a few years ago. And he isn't pretending to be something that he's not, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's charming how he has learned about these things. It's cute. I don't know. It is cute. I just love that this is like an hour of us talking about the darkness (laughs) of my face and like 15 minutes of being like, isn't neat the sweetest. We are literally on a bed right now, kicking our feet and like twirling. <laughs> We're just like twirling our hair, having a like pajama slumber party, being like, "Nate, heart like throwing- emoji." <laughs> I'm throwing popcorn at you and being like, "He's mine." <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. I just, I guess, I'm, I'm really fascinated to see where this relationship will go. I'm afraid. It feels like some inevitably bad thing is going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, because how can this last forever? Well, Do you- I also think that Nate got into this relationship very young and Nate's life was incredibly changed the instant right. that he got into this relationship. And from that point forward, it entered into like an adult life, right? Like he was like mm-hmm. 22 years old, living in Michigan, working at a pet shop. And then a year later was doing really well in a queer relationship, living in Los Angeles, starting to be a little bit famous. Uh, Things change very quickly. And I'm curious in a pessimistic way, you know, does Nate wake up at 33 and think, you know, like what's my identity? I mean, you couldn't have said my thoughts better. Like, is he going to wake up in a massive football field size pink fucking Bobby Trendy bed and look around and be like, who am I? You know what I mean? Like, who am I? Like, I'm worth $500,000 and I live with this billionaire who I'm like walking around the house wearing Gucci tracksuits and like driving a pink car. Who am I? What is my hobby? What is my passion? Like, what are my interests? I do think that, like, eventually Nate is going to have to find something of his own. Like, he's going to have to figure something out. Well, he's got the weed thing, right? Yeah, what is that? All I know about his weed thing is that he collects bulls. What is his business? So, uh, the two of them together have gone into the weed business and I think have their own strain brand. Oh, okay. Okay. Delivery service, something. They have a, a marijuana company. Uh, oh, okay. But I, he's got to get, like, a skateboard brand or something. At the same time, though, I think that uh, 
whether he's an architect of this or not, Jeffrey has allowed Nate to uh, have his own space in terms of still having his skateboarding culture, building ramps outside, bringing the pinball mm-hmm. machines into the house, uh, having all of this like specifically Nate stuff. And then uh, they did a makeup uh, palette together and they used the money to buy a house back in Michigan for Nate's family. And when they go and stay in Michigan, which they seem to do quite a bit, actually, uh, yeah. they stay with Nate's family. So I, it doesn't seem like Nate has been removed from the life that he used to live or his sense of normalcy. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it will be like RuPaul and his husband who yeah, lives good- in Wyoming and lives a separate life, but comes back sometimes. And, you know, RuPaul's husband showed up to Hollywood uh, star on the Walk of Fame. And, you know, they both came from this culture where they met at the limelight and they were in New York City, but he fell in love with somebody who was a country boy at heart. And, you know, I don't know if he's independently wealthy, but I do know he owns a really big ranch. Uh, So he lives there and they have been able to find some sort of a life. Uh, I do think maybe this is like a Pollyanna-ish perspective of me as a queer person, but I think as queer people, (coughs) we are able to define the parameters of a relationship and what the normalcy of a relationship is outside of a heterosexual context and yeah. so they don't have to have kids and they don't have right. to progress in a linear way towards something they can uh, move in and out of each other's lives and have some space or no space and do their own projects and figure out their own things I don't know I agree with you I, I definitely do feel like there's a mutual feeling of like I feel lucky that I found you sure. for whatever reason for both of them and that's like awesome I, I didn't know that that was the extent of their weed line so like that's really cool i just i think that yeah nathan needs his own creative outlet to to be like this is my thing like i'm not just shipping blood sugar palettes and you know what i mean like a thing like he you know i don't know i'm rooting for them though i really am i i, I fucking love nate and i'm rooting for them selfishly because i don't want him to exit my life <laughs> <laughs> I'm not ready. I want this cutie to stick the hell around. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also, by the way, um, Russ and I talked about possibly doing, if you guys are interested, I guess leave a comment or whatever, subscribe below or whatever, but um, click here. Uh, but if you're interested, like I, I want to definitely talk about the, um, the Shane and Jeffrey documentary that's happening right now. Uh, I wanted to kind of wait until some more like juicy stuff happens because I feel like we're inching towards it and they keep um, they keep teasing it. But like we should do that for some a bonus episode or something. Yeah, I would absolutely love to sit down and talk about it. I can't stop watching. Oh, it's so good. I can't pry myself away from the YouTubes. <laughs> um, well, I guess, do you have any closing statements about Jeffrey and Nate that you want to say before we end? No, what a wonderful and weird nostalgic ride back into our previous lives on the internet i know thank you so much for doing this i mean this you were like literally the only person i could picture doing this with for real well thank you for having me of course uh tell people where they can find you on the old on the on their myspace (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, you can follow me on Instagram. It's restlessless. Perfect. And um, also, your dog has an Instagram. Let's not sleep on that. My dog has an Instagram. It is Life of Odie, O-D-E-E. I have been sleeping on his Instagram uh, as I'm quite uh, focused on my thesis work right now. But How uh, dare you? You know, it's very rude <laughs> to my dog, who is sleeping here beside me like a sweet baby angel, my biological child. But. <laughs> well, Russ, thank you so much. I love you. I love you too, Troy. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, you guys, that was episode whatever number I said earlier of this mushroom. I hope you enjoyed it. Bye. Nate forever. <laughs> Nate forever. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this mushroom, an emotionally broken psycho's Patreon exclusive. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. Also be sure to head over to patreon.com slash ebpsychos for more information on this show and other Patreon exclusive content. You can follow me on Twitter at Troy McKeady. That's T-R-O-Y-M-C-E-A-D-Y. Thank you to executive producer Molly McAleer and coordinating producer Nicole Matthew. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.